Section 6 of the final report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Doug Shepherd. Final report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Chapter 3. Oversight and Oversights in Regulating Deepwater Energy Exploration and Production in the Gulf of Mexico. Part 1. The Deepwater Horizon rig sank on April 22, 2010, two days after the Macondo Well blowout and explosion that killed 11 workers. Not long after the tragedy, its repercussions shifted to the Minerals Management Service, MMS, the federal agency responsible for overseeing the well's drilling and operation. Nineteen days after the rig sank, Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar announced his intention to strip MMS's safety and environmental enforcement responsibilities away from its leasing, revenue collection, and permitting functions, and to place the former within a separate and independent entity. A week later, he announced MMS would be reorganized into three separate entities with distinct missions, a Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, a Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, and an Office of Natural Resources Revenue. And by June 19th, the Secretary had discarded the MMS name altogether. Like the Deepwater Horizon, MMS had ceased to exist. The rig's demise signals the conflicted evolution and severe shortcomings of federal regulation of offshore oil drilling in the United States, and particularly of MMS oversight of deepwater drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. The regulatory context for the leasing procedures and safety and environmental oversight that led up to the Macondo blowout took shape in the 1970s, when two conflicting priorities dominated the political landscape. The first to appear in the early 1970s was the public mandate for environmental protection, which prompted enactment of an extraordinary series of sweeping regulatory laws intended in the language of the National Environmental Policy Act to, quote, create and maintain conditions under which man and nature can exist in productive harmony, unquote. The second was the nation's drive for energy independence. It led to new policies designed to increase domestic production and decrease American reliance on foreign energy supplies, Oil served as a catalyst for both. The Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969 helped to promote passage of demanding environmental protection mandates, and the OPEC oil embargo of 1973 amplified the urgency of efforts to make the nation more energy self-sufficient. The federal regulation of offshore drilling awkwardly combined the two priorities as a series of Congresses, Presidents, and Secretaries of the Interior responding to competing constituencies in explicitly political ways, sought to reconcile the sometimes conflicting goals of environmental protection, energy independence, and revenue generation. In some offshore regions, oil drilling was essentially banned in response to environmental concerns. Elsewhere, most notably in the Gulf, some environmental protections and safety oversight were formally relaxed or informally diminished so as to render them ineffective, promoting a dramatic expansion of offshore oil and gas production and billions of dollars in federal revenues. The origins of MMS vividly illustrate that political compromise. Secretary of the Interior James Watt created the agency with great fanfare in January 1982, 
aiming from the outset to promote domestic energy supplies by dramatically expanding drilling on the outer continental shelf. He combined in one entity authority for regulatory oversight with responsibility for collecting for the U.S. Treasury the billions of dollars of revenues obtained from lease sales and royalty payments from producing wells. From birth, MMS had a built-in incentive to promote offshore drilling in sharp tension with its mandate to ensure safe drilling and environmental protection. Revenue generation, enjoyed both by industry and government, became the dominant objective. But there was a hidden price to be paid for those increased revenues. Any revenue increases dependent on moving drilling further offshore and into much deeper waters came with a corresponding increase in the safety and environmental risks of such drilling. Those increased risks, however, were not matched by greater, more sophisticated regulatory oversight. Industry regularly and intensely resisted such oversight, and neither Congress nor any of a series of presidential administrations mustered the political support necessary to overcome that opposition. Nor, despite their assurances to the contrary, did the oil and gas industry take the initiative to match its massive investments in oil and gas development and production with comparable investments in drilling safety and oil spill containment technology and contingency response planning in case of an accident. On April 20th, the inherent risks of decades of inadequate regulation, insufficient investment, and incomplete planning were realized in tragic fashion. MMS no doubt can fairly boast of many hard-working individual public servants who have in good faith sought to achieve their agency's important safety missions over sustained industry opposition. But, notwithstanding their individual efforts and accomplishments, the overall picture of MMS that has emerged since April 20th is distressing. MMS became an agency systematically lacking in resources, technical training, or experience in petroleum engineering that is absolutely critical to ensuring that offshore drilling is being conducted in a safe and responsible manner. For a regulatory agency to fall so short of its essential safety mission is inexcusable. This chapter is divided into three parts. The first part describes the emergence of MMS as the dominant federal regulatory agency responsible for overseeing the offshore oil and gas industry. The second part examines the performance of MMS over time, with particular focus on its efforts to promote drilling safety and the institutional, political, and cultural impediments to its success. Finally, the third part explores in more detail the application of environmental protection requirements to offshore drilling, highlighting the particular ways in which the requirements were effectively diminished or ignored. Creation of a Cross-Purposes Regulator The federal government's authority to regulate oil and gas leasing activities on the outer continental shelf is not merely an expression of the government's traditional authority to regulate private activities affecting public health, safety, and welfare. Its authority is even more sweeping in nature and further arises out of the nation's ownership of the natural resources on the outer continental shelf and the federal government's corresponding power and responsibility to manage and protect those invaluable resources on behalf of current and future generations of Americans. As described by the Constitution's Property Clause, it is the power to dispose and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. 
The federal government accordingly has plenary authority essentially without limitations to prescribe the conditions upon which others may obtain rights in natural resources located on properties that belong to the nation as a whole. Because, moreover, of the national security implications of those resources, especially energy resources, that national power further implicates the President's broad authority as Commander-in-Chief to ensure the maintenance of sufficient energy supplies to keep the nation secure. Rights and Riches The Early Skirmishes Over the Outer Continental Shelf the foundations of federal regulation of offshore oil and gas development were laid in the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act of 1953. That initial legislation gave the Department of the Interior diverse and potentially contradictory responsibilities for offshore mineral development. The vigorous debates preceding enactment of the new law and its early implementation gave the impression that it was all about the money. The potential windfall from leasing public land offshore to private companies for mineral development provoked an intense dispute between coastal states and the federal government. In 1945, President Harry Truman had proclaimed federal authority over the subsoil of the U.S. continental shelf. California, Texas, and Louisiana defied this proclamation and continued to lease offshore land, prompting suits by the U.S. Department of Justice. The Supreme Court ruled against California in 1947 and against Louisiana and Texas in 1950, declaring that the federal government possessed paramount rights that transcended the state's rights of ownership. Offshore leasing and exploration stalled for three years, as Congress and the 1952 presidential candidates postured around proposals to return submerged coastal lands to the states. That conflict was largely resolved in the Submerged Lands Act passed in 1953, two months before the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. States would control three nautical miles out from the shoreline, nine nautical miles for Texas and western Florida, due to historical claims. The Outer Continental Shelf, seaward of state lands, was claimed by the federal government. Estimates of the value of federal land offshore ranged from $40 billion to $250 billion. President Truman had called on the nation to postpone mineral development in the federal offshore area, foregoing the revenues immediately available. He argued that setting the federal offshore area aside in the Naval Petroleum Reserve would ensure that the oil and gas would be there later when needed for strategic purposes. But the congressional debates in 1953 under President Dwight Eisenhower focused on what to do with this attractive new source of revenue. Various senators proposed dedicating the funds to deficit reduction or to education. But in the end, the new money from lease sales, rents, and royalties would flow into the general treasury. The First Leases During the first week of September 1954, Secretary of the Interior Douglas Mackay announced the first federal lease sale, rights to explore 748,000 acres off the coast of Louisiana. When the sealed bids were opened on October 13, half the available acreage was leased with winning bids totaling $130 million. The next month, a similar sale off the Texas coast yielded $23 million. The promise of a new stream of federal revenue had come to pass. The Rise of Environmental Law At the outset, environmental restrictions on offshore drilling were very limited. 
1953 legislation governing offshore mineral development authorized the Interior Department to prescribe rules for the prevention of waste and conservation of natural resources of the outer continental shelf. But conservation at that time mostly referred to the desire not to waste the resource physically by destroying the oil and gas reservoir. The Department did announce, however, that the Fish and Wildlife Service would have to approve all offshore drilling in wildlife refuges, and that oil and gas leasing there that endangered rare wildlife species, like whooping cranes or trumpeter swans, would not be allowed. Federal offshore leasing policy remained largely unchanged until a Union Oil Company well, located in the Santa Barbara Channel, blew out on January 28, 1969, described in Chapter 2. The Interior Department toughened its rules in response to the spill, after first issuing a moratorium on offshore drilling and production in California waters, pending those new rules, the first changes since 1953. And at that time, Congress was already taking up legislation in response to heightened awareness of a host of environmental problems, now punctuated by the Santa Barbara spill. Starting with the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, signed into law on January 1, 1970, Congress enacted sweeping new environmental protection and resource conservation laws that dramatically changed the federal role in overseeing activities that polluted the air or water or that exploited the nation's natural resources on public lands, including offshore oil and gas development. Given its bold promises of preserving the environment for future generations, NEPA is often referred to as the Magna Carta of the nation's environmental laws. It requires federal agencies to prepare environmental impact statements for all proposed major federal actions significantly affecting the quality of the human environment in order to ensure that decisions are based on full consideration of their environmental consequences. Although it is far from clear that either Congress or the President appreciated NEPA's full import, federal courts quickly embraced the law, applying its procedural requirements strictly and enjoining agency actions found to be in violation. In order to provide the science needed for the environmental reviews and consultations directed by these statutes, the Department of Interior created the Environmental Studies Program in 1973. The program was established to provide information on the geological, physical, biological, and chemical characteristics of offshore oil and gas leasing areas. It was initially focused on scientifically characterizing areas and providing baseline environmental data, but later shifted its focus to research directly linked to resource management decisions by the offshore leasing program. NEPA was just the first among approximately 20 new laws enacted during the 1970s that aimed to advance environmental protection by curbing pollution of the nation's waters, air, or land, manage commercial activities that sought to exploit the nation's natural resources, including mining and forestry, manage the coastal zone prudently, control noise, regulate toxic substances, and protect endangered species, among other goals. Amid this rapid, extensive transformation of the nation's environmental protection and natural resource management laws, one had particular significance for the federal oversight of offshore drilling, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act Amendments of 1978. It was the last major natural resource law 
that Congress passed during the 1970s, and so embodies the shifting nature of national politics from the decade's beginning to its end. Energy Independence versus Environmental Protection Conflicting Aims in High Relief Although Americans' embrace of environmental protection persisted throughout the decade, the 1973 oil embargo prompted ambitious efforts to promote the nation's energy independence. President Richard Nixon proposed a dramatic expansion of offshore oil and gas development, including in frontier areas around most of the nation's coast. President Jimmy Carter created the Department of Energy in 1977 and secured passage of the National Energy Act of 1978, consisting of five separate laws, some designed to promote development of domestic energy supplies and others to encourage energy conservation. The Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act amendments, also enacted that year, not surprisingly reflected the tension between the nation's environmental and energy independence goals. Those skeptical of accelerated offshore leasing, including many coastal states, local governments, fishermen, and environmentalists, sought, to that end, opportunities to ensure that offshore oil and gas leasing complied with strict safeguards and a greater voice in the decision-making process. They were concerned about the broad discretion the Act conferred on the Secretary of the Interior over control and management of offshore energy resources. By contrast, advocates for expanded domestic production wanted to ensure that the new legislation did not allow environmental protection laws to stifle exploration, development, and production of significant offshore oil and gas reservoirs. They were aware that environmental organizations had used NEPA successfully to challenge a proposed lease sale covering almost 380,000 acres offshore Louisiana and Mississippi on the grounds that the Interior Department had failed to first prepare an adequate environmental impact statement. The federal courts had agreed and enjoined the sale in January 1972. Coastal states and environmentalists had since launched challenges against other lease sales. Congress began to hold hearings on revamping the federal offshore leasing program in 1974, just after the oil embargo and not long after those early environmental challenges. The law that emerged in 1978 included findings on the need to reduce the nation's dependence on imports of oil from foreign nations, the potential to increase production of oil and gas on the outer continental shelf significantly without undue harm or damage to the environment, and the need to review environmental and safety regulations relating to activities on the outer continental shelf in light of current technology and information. The Act's purposes included expedited exploration and development of the outer continental shelf and the development of new and improved technology for energy resource production which will eliminate or minimize the risk of damage to the human, marine, and coastal environments. The 1978 Act fundamentally transformed federal offshore leasing. The law added detailed procedures governing the leasing of rights to explore, develop, and produce the resources of the outer continental shelf. The offshore program was divided into four distinct stages. Development by the Secretary of the Interior of a schedule of proposed lease sales indicating as precisely as possible the size, timing, and location of leasing activity 
which he determines will best meet national energy needs for the five-year period following its approval or reapproval. Lease sales by the Secretary pursuant to that five-year schedule. Submission by lessees of exploration plans for the Secretary's approval and upon discovery of oil and gas in commercial quantities, submission of development and production plans by lessees for the Secretary's approval. The Act further requires lessees to apply for the Secretary of the Interior's permission prior to drilling any wells, pursuant to an approved exploration plan, or, in most areas, pursuant to a development and production plan. At the same time, the statute also made clear that environmental safeguards are a relevant, important part of the Secretary's decision-making. For instance, it charged the Secretary to obtain a proper balance between the potential for environmental damage, the potential for discovery of oil and gas, and the potential for adverse impact on the coastal zone. The law also expressly required the Secretary to prepare a series of environmental studies to assess the environmental impacts of the activities on the outer continental shelf and the secretary of the department in which the coast guard is operating currently the department of homeland security to promulgate safety regulations such regulations were to include the use of the best available and safest technologies which the secretary of the interior determines to be economically feasible wherever failure of equipment would have significant effect on safety health or the environment but this potentially demanding requirement included an exception, where the Secretary determines that the incremental benefits are clearly insufficient to justify the incremental costs of utilizing such technologies. The Gulf of Mexico Exemption Offsetting the apparent interest in environmental review, the Act reflected a carefully calibrated political compromise designed to promote offshore drilling. It expressly exempted leases in the Gulf of Mexico from the law's requirement that development and production pursuant to an oil and gas lease must be based on and consistent with a development and production plan submitted by the lessee and approved by the Secretary of the Interior. No comparable exception applied to exploration plans, which all lessees were required to submit for approval prior to conducting such drilling, which naturally occurs prior to development and production. The telling compromise lay in the details. The law specified that a development and production plan must set forth the environmental safeguards to be implemented, and the Secretary must at least once declare the approval of a development and production plan in any area to be a major federal action language which triggers the NEPA's requirement for an impact statement detailing the environmental consequences of development and production. Therefore, by exempting leases in the Gulf from the required development and production plan, the Act was also exempting such leases from the related requirement of at least one NEPA impact statement. And the Act included one further bit of congressional horse trading. It authorized the Secretary of the Interior to reinstate the development and production plan requirements, including NEPA review, for an oil and gas lease located in the eastern planning area of the Gulf abutting the western coastline of California, leaving only the central and western Gulf planning areas off-limits from such requirements. The legislative history makes clear that this was a deal brokered between the Carter administration, the oil and gas industry, Congress, and the Gulf states, 
Industry had argued that NEPA and similar requirements could lengthen the interval between leasing and production by three to six years. In response to this concern, Congress amended the bill to draw a distinction between the Gulf of Mexico, where such consultation would not be required, and other offshore areas where it would. The rationale for singling out the Gulf of Mexico for less environmental oversight than other parts of the nation's offshore was that the oil and gas industry in the Gulf was already mature, and therefore the environmental risks were already better known than they were in frontier areas. This roughly geographically defined generalization took no account of the Gulf's remarkable fisheries or the economic importance of the region's beaches to the tourism industry. Secretary of the Interior Cecil Andrus sought administrative discretion to require the full environmental review even in some non-frontier areas if drilling in those areas proved to present heightened environmental risks. But the final legislation made that further concession only for a part of the Gulf. A compromise comes undone. Whatever compromise Congress and President Carter may have thought they had struck in the 1978 legislation quickly unraveled. In the first five-year leasing schedule issued in June 1980, Secretary Andrus offered 55 million acres and proposed lease sale 53 along the Pacific coast. Unlike previous sales, which had been concentrated on one geographic region, lease sale 53 called for nominations of tracks from the Santa Barbara Channel all the way up to the California coast and to the Oregon border. Fierce opposition immediately greeted the proposed leasing schedule and lease sale 53. California and Alaska filed lawsuits challenging the legality of the leasing schedule under the 1978 law. After huge public rallies, Secretary Andrus formally withdrew the entire northern and central California portion of the proposed sale. The Creation of the Minerals Management Service, MMS Against a backdrop of rising inflation, record interest rates, further turbulence in the oil market following the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and a severe recession, the politics of offshore drilling became even more volatile early in the administration of President Ronald Reagan, who was inaugurated in January 1981. Perhaps not surprisingly, after the upwelling of new regulatory powers under Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter, the new president made clear from the outset his view that government regulation was a leading cause of the nation's problems, a drag on the nation's economy in general, and the development of its rich natural resources in particular. Secretary of the Interior James Watt shared that outlook and focused his early regulatory reform efforts on offshore drilling. He quickly vowed to lease a billion acres of the outer continental shelf, virtually the entire area, for oil and gas exploration. And he made clear his commitment to maintaining that objective, notwithstanding enormous criticism. If the press is here, he declared during a National Ocean Industries Association meeting in April 1982, I hope they will write this down. We will offer one billion acres for leasing in the next five years. We will not back away from our plans to have 42 lease sales. MMS originated in this context, driven by the administration's desire to ensure that it obtained the financial fruits of its plan for this massive expansion in offshore drilling. With the dramatic increase in oil prices over the previous decade, 
royalties and revenues from federal oil and gas resources had already become the second largest revenue source for the U.S. Treasury. A September 1980 lease sale in New Orleans had demonstrated the sums potentially at stake, bringing in a record $2.8 billion of cash bonuses, far more than any prior lease sale. See Chapter 2. Clearly, this was a consequential way to secure revenue without needing to raise taxes. Revenue Collection and Regulation Separated Until this time, the Interior Department's Bureau of Land Management and Bureau of Indian Affairs had been responsible for collecting royalties for mining and drilling on federal and Indian lands, respectively, and regulatory oversight of offshore exploration and energy production had been vested in the U.S. Geological Survey's Conservation Division but the department's management of royalties was subjected to frequent criticism. In July 1981, the administration created a Commission on Fiscal Accountability of the Nation's Energy Resources, charged with reviewing and recommending changes in the system for collecting royalties. Reporting the next January, the Commission concluded that, quote, management of royalties for the nation's energy resources has been a failure for more than 20 years. The oil and gas industry is not paying all the royalties it rightly owes. The government's royalty record-keeping is in disarray." Unquote. It accordingly called for a complete overhaul, including a wholesale reorganization of Interior Department responsibility for overseeing royalty collection from federal and Indian lands. Mixing oil and water, revenue collection and regulation combined. Using the discretion conferred on him in the 1978 Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act amendments, Secretary Watt moved quickly, issuing Secretarial Order No. 3071 on January 19th, creating the Minerals Management Service. Moving beyond the Commission recommendations for reform of royalty collection, he provided that the new agency would also absorb offshore leasing and oversight responsibilities from the U.S. Geological Survey. There is no available formal record of his reasoning for this further step, but the most likely reasons are revealed by a memorandum written by the Chief of the Conservation Division, Don Cash, dated December 11, 1981, just a few weeks earlier. In that memo, Cash vigorously argued in favor of relocating responsibilities for lease management from the Conservation Division into a new independent agency within the Interior Department, precisely what the Secretary then did. But Secretary Watt's decision did not fully reflect Cash's concern. The latter had worried that the controversial politics of lease management were, quote, sullying the U.S. Geological Survey's scientific reputation, unquote, and threatened its, quote, science ethos and scientific virtue, unquote. The collision of cultures between those engaged in scientific research and those engaged in lease management was a continuing source of irritation and bitterness within the U.S. Geological Survey. He was concerned that lease management would increasingly take priority, draining resources from the research that should be the hallmark of the U.S. Geological Survey. Finally, Cash described problems that leasing management would face going forward, foremost among them a tendency towards myopic thinking and inadequately trained personnel. On that last issue, he pointed out that the government could not retain, quote, geologists and geophysicists 
associated with outer continental shelf activities because they can move to an industrial or business concern for a substantial increase in pay almost at will. Unquote. Cash recommended a series of steps to attract and train personnel capable of overseeing the management of offshore oil and gas activities. Secretary Watt organized two distinct programs within his newly minted MMS, the Offshore Energy and Minerals Management Program and the Minerals Revenue Management Program. He rejected the General Accounting Office's recommendation, which industry had opposed, that MMS also assume responsibility for onshore oil and gas leasing. The Bureau of Land Management retained that regulatory authority. The result was that the same agency became responsible for regulatory oversight of offshore drilling and for collecting revenue from that drilling. End of section six. Recording by Doug Shepherd.